Okay, if you have your Bibles, if you want to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, <clears throat> last time we went down as far as verse 8, sort of touched there upon verse 9 as we were wrapping up our study. And what I want to do just for sake of context, even though we looked at the first eight verses or so, is just begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 4. As Moses is kind of finishing up this first sermon now, again, very clear that the theme here is obedience and the value of obedience to God's word, that we would take heed to it. And by taking heed to the word of God, uh, we take heed to ourselves. Uh, and here God is trying to drive that home through Moses as he's speaking to them. They are on the border of the promised land, this next generation before they go in. He says to them there, chapter 4, verse 1, we looked at it last time, but he says, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes <clears throat> and to the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. Again, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So again, giving the word of God, not just for intellectual information, but clearly, as we see there, verse 1, for observation, that they would respond to it, that they would live it out, that they would obey it, uh, that they would not add anything to what God says and try and say that something else is required, but they also would not retract and take away or remove something from God's standards or his commands, but that they would be fully obedient to what God had commanded them. And then, of course, God's warning in the reminder, verse 3, your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal of Peor, for the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today. The contrast, disobedience, death, devastation, and loss as compared to obedience, holding fast, to God, to his word, and obeying it brought life and preservation of life for them. Surely, he said, verse 5, I've taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of the peoples who hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that God has, has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? So again, just the, the exhortation, the injunction, how because they had the word of God, the statutes, the righteous standards of the word of God, how though they may not necessarily need be more intellectually uh, you know, brilliant than their adversaries and the other peoples in the lands, the very fact that they had the wisdom and the understanding of the divine way to live from God's very word that was given to them would allow them to excel as a people, would cause God's favor to be upon them as a nation as they adhered to the word of God, as they retained it at the center of their lives, both personally as well as families and 
Uh, a course, even civilly and nationally as a people, that it would cause them to become a great nation and in direct connection to their adherence and their esteeming and upholding the word of God as the standard for living and the authority in their life. They were a great nation and they were blessed and God's favor is upon them. And every time throughout history, Israel would disregard the word of God. They would turn to idols. They would, uh, in a sense, forsake the scriptures. Uh, they would be weakened as a people and they would fall into idolatry and their enemies would overcome them. And, and so because of that, realizing that this issue of personal response is something that is on the end of humanity that God can give the right way God can say the right things God can give the commands and and provide direction but what we do with what God says to us is something that we in a sense have the prerogative and the control over so God here giving this exhortation through Moses verse 9 therefore saying to them only take heed to yourself again pay attention Examine yourself at times. He says, take heed, be careful to diligently keep yourselves lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. So God calling them there to self-examination. He says, take heed to yourself. Diligently keep yourself. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is from Proverbs chapter 4 where it says, keep your heart with all diligence. For from it flow the issues of life. And again, that idea there of keeping your heart with all diligence, it's in a sense a farming picture there. Like you have to tend the land, you have to pull out the weeds and you have to work the ground and, and sow it and cultivate the land in order for it to be fruitful and to produce what it's intended to produce. And so that the good crop is not lost and, and abandoned in a sense because of neglect. And the idea is the same with our heart. Our hearts need to be tended. They need to be cultivated. Our hearts by nature, Jeremiah 17 says what? Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So our heart left to itself is always going to gravitate what's wrong towards what's sinful. It's going to magnetically be drawn to what's fleshly and carnal. It's only as we keep our heart, as we diligently tend our heart by exposing it to the word of God, by examining our heart conditioning, by being responsive to the convictions of the Holy Spirit within us at times when he puts his finger on something in our life and he says, this, this attitude is not consistent with the nature of God. This idea does not line up with what Scripture says. This perspective, it, it may seem justified and it may be the way that everyone else in the world would think in that situation, but yet that's not consistent with the will of God or what the Word of God and therefore you, you need to repent of that. You need to have your mind renewed and it's only as we keep our hearts in this place where we're continually keeping our heart with diligence that we keep our heart in a healthy place. And he says the reason for that is out of the heart flow the issues of life. This is the epicenter of everything in our being. And I'll tell you, you have perhaps experienced in your own life, I have witnessed many times in my own and in the lives of plenty of others throughout years of pastoral ministry that the heart will always make a convert of the mind. And if your heart is not in a right place, it is amazing what people will convince themselves of. It is absolutely astonishing. If someone's heart is not right and they refuse to deal with the issue of their heart, the heart will always make a convert of the mind and it will begin to believe things and to justify things and to convince itself 
that something that is right is wrong and wrong and is right and it is absolutely astonishing how dangerous that can be. So he says here to them, listen, God's given you his word, the wisdom, the understanding of how to do life, how to live in a way that you'll be blessed and experience the best. But he says, you have to take heed to yourself and keep yourself lest you forget the things he says that your eyes have seen. In other words, forgetting the ways of God. They had seen God so clear, the reality of God, the presence of God, the work of God. Now keep in mind, when the Bible says, verse nine there, lest you forget when God uses that terminology, he's not speaking of forget in the sense of how we think of it as far as you know we somehow failing to remember something because the reality is, look, you, you can't forget God. You can't forget the existence of God. When the Bible uses the word forget, it, it's speaking of, of choosing to set something aside to disregard it you know it's not as if somehow at some point in your life one sunday morning you're going to wake up and you're going to kind of just boy i I know i used to do something every sunday i just i don't know what i there was somewhere i went and i think we used to we used to sing and i think we used to study something and I just I I guess I, have to, I don't know what it was and and I you know, and and I I think I used to follow somebody I mean, I don't think I was always in charge of my life and made all my own decisions I, I that's not the idea the idea is 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 choosing to in a sense set aside it's it's the idea of how we consciously choose in the same way when let's say somebody spurns us or we have a bad experience in a relationship and we say forget you forget you. I'm done with you. You're behind my back. That's it. Forget you. Maybe that's the Italian. Sorry, I don't know if that's right or wrong. Good thing this isn't videoed. I don't know. I didn't go forward. I just went to the side. It wasn't the full. Nobody saw that. But, but that's the idea there. People do that with God. Maybe something embitters them or something else becomes more important to them. And so they set God aside. And, and, and they don't keep their heart. And they let their heart go to a place where they just kind of set God. That's it. I'm done with God. Or, or I want this so much, if that means I've got to set God aside to go after what I want, then people will do that. They'll begin to cherish and love something else. The Bible speaks of loving pleasure and being lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Uh, and these kind of things can happen. And so the warning, again, God understands humanity. He understands what we're like. So he cautions them, he warns them here not to let these things, look at it, it says, depart from your heart, to hold those things. We have to focus on our heart condition, do heart maintenance, uh, lest we ultimately have a heart that causes us to be terminal in moral and spiritual ways. Verse 9, look, not only take heed to yourself and keep yourself in a right place morally and spiritually, but I think this is perhaps twofold. Part of the reason why, he says, verse 9, and teach them these things spiritually to your children and your grandchildren now take notice god wanted his spiritual truths and an experience with god a relationship with god to be transmitted from generation to generation and god put that responsibility notice upon the parents and the grandparents with their own children and their own grandchildren we see this thematically multiple times especially in the book of deuteronomy we'll see it in chapter 6 again in chapter 11 i believe in chapter 32 multiple times we'll see this reference to parents teaching their children spiritually raising and training them in the ways of god spiritually there's no mention of the priest being primarily responsible to raise the children spiritually again 
I think children's ministry, because uh, it'd be a wonderful supplemental thing in churches and, and ministries that you know uh, focus on children, but I think those things are to be supplemental. They're to supplement what parents are already doing, understanding their God-given responsibility with their children to train them in the ways of the Lord. But that is why I think these two hinge together here in verse 9, where he says, look, take heed to yourself, keep your own heart right, so that you can teach your children and your, and your grandchildren. Because see, if you're not living those things yourself, your testimony, your credibility, and your opportunity to convey those truths to your children and your grandchildren is, is going to be so diminished. It's going to be so diluted. But if they see it being lived out in your life, if they see you genuinely following Christ and they see you, uh, you know, sincerely obeying the word of God and not going to church and raising your hands, singing happy hallelujah Jesus, and then in the home living in a completely different inconsistent way to scripture. Because that will do nothing but not only diminish the opportunity to teach kids, that will confuse your children to no end. To me, that is a crime if you're doing that as a parent. It's a crime. And Jesus said that those who stumble little children, he said it would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you took a jump into the depths of the sea. He didn't say it would be like it. He said it would be better. That would be a better option than having to give account for that. We have a huge responsibility spiritually as parents and even a glorious opportunity as grandparents. The Bible says here, teach your children and your grandchildren. So again, obeying and living these things on ourselves so that we can convey these things to our children, to our grandchildren with credibility and again, with, with a level of, of integrity and authority that, that it's real to us, it's personal. You know, how much more you know, healthy is something wh when you're sharing from personal experience, not just conveying thoughts, not just conveying you know, theological information, but it's your personal experience. And you know, I just want to you know, encourage us this evening, for those of you who have children, for those of you who are in the place where you have grandchildren, th this is our calling. This is the greatest children's ministry that there possibly is to be able to do this, to have that privilege. And, and listen, this does not mean that you have to take your children and, and again, you do what the Lord leads. It doesn't mean you have to take your children and sit them down in little chairs and you know, like, like this, like make a little mini sanctuary and, and preach at them for 45 minutes a sermon. If that's what your kids like, God bless you. And if they respond to that, you're fantastic. But the reality is, chapter 6 is going to say, as you're walking around, as you're sitting down, getting up, the idea is as you're living out your life spiritually, you're looking for opportunities in the midst of everyday living to convey in teachable moments the truth of God's word. And I, and I think we have to be sensitive in seasons. Look, I can tell you for, for our family personally, we went through different seasons where I tried to be wise and my wife and I tried to be discerning in regards to what age the kids were at and what worked when. And there were seasons when it worked to sit down and to you know, do a little devotional time or something like that. And, and there were occasions where we did kind of the family devotion thing like that. But you know, I, I look, as early as the days of, I remember when they were first little, I always did the bedtime thing when they were infants, when they were babies. Putting them to bed at night, praying for them when they were you know, six months old, 11 months old, you know, praying for them before I put them down in the crib and then just quoting... Verses like John 3.16 and Romans 6.23. 
Because I believe from their earliest days, and, and the wonderful thing is at that age, they couldn't say stop. <laughs> you know, I just pray for them and, and, and for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten to just speak in their little baby years. And you want to know the reasons why I did that? Because I had the privilege to lead my grandfather to the Lord. And the way that I had the opportunity to lead my grandfather to the Lord was through him telling me that he remembered a verse that he had learned when he was about grammar school age that somebody took him to a vacation Bible school and out of the clear blue sky, decades later, he said it said something like this, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That verse had sat dormant in his heart for decades and decades and decades the seed of that word that some person shared with him a Bible verse in his heart and it sprung to life and that was the verse that I said that's exactly what God wants for you and I use that as a platform to preach the gospel and to lead him to Christ that day and I realized at that point the, again the, the reality of the power of God's word so when they were babies look is your grandchild a baby? do you watch him? you know quote a scripture verse to them they may not even be aware or conscious that you're doing it but it's still sowing that right into their spirit and quote evangelistic scripture verses because I'll tell you you know parenting and grandparenting the sooner the Holy Spirit gets on the inside the much better your life becomes because then God's working from the inside there so share the scripture with them. You know, maybe it is having a family devotion, but there are times where when we used, you know, I used to drive the girls to school in the morning, and I remember for one season when I drive all three of them to school there. We, at a certain point, we, you know, it got at a certain point, maybe ten minutes or so away from the school, we passed at a certain house, and I would go driving Devo time, and I would just tell them what I read in my morning devotions. They were captive audience. They were there. It worked. And I would just talk to them about what I sh read in my devotions that morning and share something. Uh, th there were another few years where when they were going to school, what I used to do is, is I, I would write out you know, a, a little small devotion. I would just go through books of the Bible. I'd take one or two verses, print them out, and then I'd write a three, four sentence explanation. Nothing deep theologically. Three, four sentences underneath. I'd print out three copies of it, slice them in half. I'd give them to mom who was making the lunch. She sticked those papers in their lunch boxes and they had a devotion from dad's heart in their lunchbox. Again, it wasn't a season when they were per se maybe as interested to try and get everybody to sit down and it, it, that might not, but I, you know, that worked. That worked and it was a way to teach them and to just share things. Do, do, do you want to know what I do now? About the last year or so, I use this thing. Because you know what? You know how much they're on this thing? And now I have a daughter at college, so I can't pack her lunch anymore. Well, my wife can't pack her lunch anymore. I want to make her cry, but I, I can't give her her little slip of paper in her lunchbox. So now I, I, the, the night before, I take 10, 15, 20 minutes. I wrote out a, write out a brief devotion, not long, one or two verses. I'm going through the book of James with them right now. Put a verse or two on there. Write a few sentences underneath of it. There you go. Send it to all four of them. Sharing the word of God. Listen, I, I, I can't emphasize enough the value of taking seriously this calling and this responsibility, whether you're a parent, whether you're a grandparent, and whether, I think there should be intentional ways we do that, but I also think that if you're wise, look for teachable moments. Look for teachable moments. 
I was with my two oldest daughters uh, the other day. We were, I think it might have been one of the days when we over Thanksgiving holiday. We dropped the younger one off. And the two older ones are, are, in my impression, closer to the boyfriend age. So we had about a good 20-minute drive home. I said, okay, let's talk about boys. <laughs> and let's talk about what it means to, to look for a man that, that doesn't just have Jesus as a part of his life, but Jesus is the passion of his life. And he's the priority in his life. And I said, because there's a difference. You can marry a Christian who's going to heaven and Jesus is a part of his life. And, and that's okay. And, and quite honestly though, but that's probably what you're going to have to be content with as a wife. That he's a, a Christian man who, he's willing to let Jesus be a part of his life, but Jesus is in his passion and Jesus is in his priority. He just Jesus is a part of his life and he's okay with that and that's about it. And that's how it's going to be. And that's probably how your spiritual life is going to be. Or you can find a man who Jesus is his passion and his priority that's going to lead you spiritually the way God intends for you to experience. And there's a difference. And we, and we just talked about that. And again, I, I just share these things with you because I think a lot of times why parents don't, convey spiritual things with their kids and why grandpa is because people feel that they're you know well i'm not able i'm i'm ill-equipped yes you are it's it's not complicated don't complicate it you don't have to prepare a sermon think like you're behind a pulpit just in a very informal but intentional way just share you should be having your own devotions anyway just share what you're reading in your devotions Talk to him once in a while. Tell him what you learned at church and just find those ways to convey those things. But again, live them out and then teach them to your children and your grandchildren. I'm sorry, that was an extended sermon, but I feel very passionately about that. And, and I just think it's so critical. It was critical to the health of the nation and, and spiritual heritage and legacy is something that we must pass on to the next generation. And no one's going to do a better job than the parents and the grandparents of those children who have access to them best. Verse 10, notice, especially, so as you're teaching your children and your grandchildren, he says, especially... Share with them concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb. When the Lord said to me, gather the people to me and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may, again, notice, teach their children. So he says, as you share with them, notice, make sure you share verse 10, especially concerning the experience at Horeb. What was the experience at Horeb? Well, in essence, that was sort of the first time the children of Israel had a real, I mean, real personal encounter with God. When they were there at Mount Horeb, when, when they heard the voice of God, as we're reading over here, when, when they, yes, they had seen God's wonders as they were coming out of Egypt. They saw the plagues and the miracles. and so. But this was when they, for themselves, for the first time, really had a personal experience with God. And they really heard God for themselves. And he's saying, look, those are the things to tell them. Great to say, well, let me tell you some things about God. He did a miracle. But he's saying, especially tell them about your own experience with God and what you experienced God do in your own life. That time when God said to gather the people that they would hear my words and learn to fear me. In verse 11, Moses says, then you came near that day and stood at the foot of the mountain and it burned with fire in the midst of heaven, with darkness and cloud and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst 
of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, notice, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. So as God communicated that day with them, and again, he's referring to here, we're going to see the reference to the experience of receiving the Ten Commandments. He says, remember how, verse 12, the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. God manifested himself in this consuming fire, all of his holiness and his power and his glory there at Mount Horeb. And you heard God speak. Notice, you heard the sound of the words but you saw no form. The idea is you saw no image. You only heard a voice. And again, keep in mind, this was God revealing himself to the children of Israel and God chose in his revelation not to reveal himself in a form, in an image, in some way. Again, the Bible says that God is spirit and we must worship him in spirit and truth. So God did not give them any form, any physical manifestation. He let them hear his words speaking to them. And that was the way God chose to reveal himself in that hour. So he, verse 13, declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, the Ten Commandments, which we'll see reiterated in chapter 5, which he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Again, take notice, verse 13, for biblical accuracy, it says that God wrote the Ten Commandments on the two tablets of stone. A lot of times you'll see the movies uh, you know, of Ten Commandments or stories, and, and sometimes you see like, you know, you get the image there of Moses etching out with a chisel and a hammer. There are the, the Ten Commandments. You know, God gives them, okay. It says God wrote them. God wrote the Ten Commandments. God spoke them audibly. So somehow the people actually heard. They heard the voice of God they heard God speaking and what an awesome thing to be able to hear the voice of God, that God wants to speak to us, that God speaks to his people and then he recorded, he gave them the, the written revelation of his word. So audibly God gave his word, but then he gave the written revelation on the two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me, Moses says at that time, to teach you the statutes and judgments that you may observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. So God spoke to them audibly. They heard his voice. God recorded his word in a written form. And then God also asked Moses as their shepherd leader to then teach them and to explain to them how to observe those things, how to follow them and to live them out as they prepared to cross over into the land that they were about to possess. Again, verse 15, notice that we'll see this constant reiteration in this chapter. Take careful heed to yourselves. Take heed, be careful. For you, notice, saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed lest your eyes lift to heaven when you see the sun, moon, and stars and all the host of them and you feel driven to worship them and to serve them which the Lord your God has given to all the people under the whole heaven as a heritage. So again, this exhortation and reminder that they saw no form, and here we see part of the reason why he says, take heed that when you come into the land that you don't act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image 
some some visual thing that you look to as a visual physical representation of God. And again, you think, well, what's the need to say all this? You know, not like a male or a female, an animal of earth or a winged bird or something that's, you know, a fish in the water beneath and so on and so forth. Because in the land that they were going to and the people that they were among, that was what many of those people did. They were not only idolatrous, but they carved and created visual representations of their gods. So they would say, this is our God that we worship where's your god we don't see your god this this is our god we we worship this god we we were and this is our god and because of that the, the pressure to be conformed to the pattern of the world around them and to try and in a sense make their worship system be conducive to the worship lies everyone else god says look be careful god gave you no physical representation of what he looked like again as i said earlier jesus said god is spirit and those who worship and must worship in spirit and truth. We have in the Bible no real mention of physical representation of what God is like. Well, yes, we have ways that the Bible speaks to try and personify God to help us understand the eye of the Lord, the ear of the Lord, the hand of the Lord. But the Bible really gives to us no physical description, quite honestly, not even of Jesus himself. We obviously know he was a Jewish man, but beyond that, we, we really have no other understanding. And again, why? Because God knows our tendency. God knows that our, 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 our tendency to be prone towards wanting to create something that we can visually look at and to worship. And, and, and the reason why God doesn't want that, again, God's later going to say, as he reminds us in chapter 5 about the Ten Commandments again, not to make any graven image, the whole essence and reasons why behind that, there's nothing that would adequately represent God. How do you make something that's going to represent God? I mean, God's omnipresent. That means God is everywhere. Once you make something, you've ruined that because you've now limited God to a locality, to a little piece of wood or a statue or something. You know, God's omnipotent. It means all-powerful. Now, you're going to create an all-powerful God by something you create with your human hands? That's kind of contradictory. Again, the reason God said, look, there's nothing that could accurately represent God. That's what's so foolish in trying to create something as a visual stimulus, as a representation of God. And really, when human beings have to create something to stimulate their ability to worship God, to hold or to look at or to, to focus upon, what that really is a testimony of is that we've lost consciousness of the presence of a living God. Because our God is an invisible God, but his presence is very real and we know it. We hear his voice. We see him with the eyes of faith. And when we need to have some relic or thing that's required as a part of our worship, in a sense, what we're saying is, is, is we need something because we're struggling with the consciousness of the, we've lost sense of the presence of God. And, and we're diminishing really who God is anyway and the reality is, take notice verse 19, what God understands is the reason this is so dangerous is he says, and you feel driven to worship these other things and to serve them. I want you to notice that verse 19, I have it underlined in my Bible because I want you to see that God understands that we are all driven to worship. By nature, by design, every person is driven to worship and serve something. It's just the way that we are. There is naturally within every single human being a drive 
to worship someone, to serve someone. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. But the reality behind that is we all serve some master. Now that master may be self. It may be self-worship. Self-gratification, self-pleasure, you know, it, it may be some, you know, possession, it may be some pursuit in life, it may be some person or relationship, anything other than God that we create and we worship and we esteem over God is idolatry and it's, it's false worship. But God understands that we are all driven to worship and serve something. The important thing is, is that we are not driven to worship and serve anything other than God himself. That God is who our worship is to be regulated for and who our worship is to be given to. So he says, look, I know your tendency. And he says, when you get into the land, be careful that you're not driven to worship and serve those other things which God has given. The idea is that God's created under the whole heaven as a heritage. It's the whole Romans 1 thing. You can read the chapter where it says that men in that day worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Look, we should appreciate nature, creation. All, wow, look at, look at the ocean that God made. It looks so beautiful, it's incredible, and the power of you know, the waves. And th- but we should always remember, my God made that. Wow, what an awesome God he must be then, because he created this. And that we would never begin to worship and esteem those other things. Again, the moon, the stars, horoscopes, all these things. You know That unfortunately people are driven to worship those things, the moon, the stars, the horoscopes, rather than being driven to worship and serve the God who created them. Verse 20 says, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace. So again, why should they not be driven to worship and serve created things rather than the creator himself well because he's worthy of worship he says verse 20 it was the lord again not these other things it was the lord who's taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace of egypt to be his people as an inheritance as you are this day again god was the one who drew them out of that place of, of, of bondage and, and painful suffering and the hardships that they were under at one time in Egypt, even as he's done that in our lives. As he's drawn us out of the iron furnace, the, the condition that we were in as a part of Egypt and the world system, as God drew us out, revealed himself to us. Furthermore, verse 21, the Lord was angry with me, Moses says, for your sakes. He likes to remind him of that. You notice that? And he swore that I would not cross over the Jordan and I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. But I must die in this land and I must not cross over the Jordan, but you shall cross over and possess that good land. Again, take heed to yourselves. There it is again. Lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make for yourselves again a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you reason verse 24 for the Lord your God is a consuming fire a jealous God God is a consuming fire a jealous God again a representation of what God is like he's like a consuming fire his awesomeness his holiness again fire purifies it purges it consumes anything that it comes into contact with 
Again, sometimes people look at this and they go, well, see, there we go again. The Old Testament God, he's, you know, fire and brimstone. And look, the Bible says in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, that God is a consuming fire. It's a reference to the holiness of God. I'm glad that my God's a consuming fire. I don't want him to be a damp cloth. You know? I don't want a wimpy God. Oh, yeah, my, you know, my God's just a damp cloth. I just push him around and I, whatever I want to do, I do. And he just bows the knee. No, I want a God that's powerful. I want a God that's a consuming fire, a God that I have reverence for, a God that puts me in my place and says, I can consume you at any moment if I want to, son. Because I have that kind of power. I'm that awesome. And to know that when I have struggles and things in my life that I don't want there, that I can come to a God like that and say, Lord, would you just, like a refiner's fire, consume and burn this junk out of my life? These wrong thoughts, this you know, wrong attitude, Lord, these things that I don't want in my life, they're not Christ-like. Lord, would you, would you just, with your refiner's fire, burn that stuff out of me? Consume me more, Lord. Take away these things. Temper me. Make me more pure and refined like gold that he's a consuming fire and nurse and that he's a jealous God. Again, we often think of jealousy in a very negative way, but jealousy is not always a bad thing. It can be a sinful thing. But jealousy can be a good and a godly thing. The idea is that God is jealous for our affection. He wants our complete allegiance. He wants a love relationship with us. He wants us to be fully devoted to him. Again, I can understand this. I, I have a wife. And, and if my wife said to me at some point, listen, you know, I, mean, I love you. I do want to continue my relationship with you. But you know, I, I, you know, I just been kind of thinking that, you know, I was thinking maybe I might, you know, just bring one or two other men at least in the house. I mean, just one person is seeming a little limited right now. I want to just expand my options a little bit. You know, I mean, I'm willing to give you some of my allegiance and, and probably even most of my allegiance, but once in a while, I want to be able to be devoted to this other thing too. I want to indulge this other thing too. Sorry. I would be very jealous. I would become a consuming fire at that moment. And listen, if I'm like that as a flawed, sinful human being, as a husband who has a love for his wife, why not God in all of his love and awesome holiness and purity who created us and breathes the breath into our very lungs, who purchased us with the shed blood of his son, not have the right? And the idea there is like a red-faced, jealous, angry attitude. That God's jealous. He's jealous for you. But it's because he loves you. And so whenever we give our allegiance and our devotion to other things and we forsake and abandon God because we give our allegiance to something else, God's jealous for us. He's jealous for our attention. To me, that's a beautiful thing. That's a testament of the love of God. It's a testament that you're that valuable, that you're that special to him. I think it's a wonderful thing. So, oh, my, my husband's, my husband's kind of jealous. Good. It's a good thing. That's a healthy thing in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a proper way. And God is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. He's jealous for your love. He's jealous for your devotion. He doesn't want to share you with other lovers, if you would, with other things that you would be flirting with other things that aren't, in a sense, allowing you to give your full devotion and commitment to him. So he's a consuming fire and a jealous God. He says, verse 25, when you beget children and grandchildren, now he almost becomes, notice, prophetic here looking down 
to the ages to come. Moses goes from lawgiver to prophet here. When you beget children and grandchildren have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger. So notice he says, don't do these things. And then Moses says, and when time goes by and you start to do this, again, he, you know, he understands humanity and again, shows you understands the heart of God. God has an ideal for his people, but he also understands that we're flawed, that we're sinful. So he begins to say, when you get in the land and you do make carved images and you do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days and it will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and that would happen. And you will be left few in number and that would happen historically among the nations where the Lord will drive you and there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. So again, God speaks of how in the days ahead of them, ultimately, prophetically, Moses sees them doing these very things and as a result, being pushed out of the land, being scattered, becoming few in number. Verse 27 there, being driven into other lands and other nations and that would happen at least concretely two times two dates 722 BC it would happen when the Assyrians would take captive uh, the northern part of Israel and then again in 586 BC when the Babylonians would come and and, and conquer the, the southern part of Israel and bring them into other lands where they would be driven into captivity and driven out of their land and as a result verse 28 they would be there serving notice and worshiping other gods and other idols the very thing that God told them not to do that they still did anyway in their their you know rebellion against God God ultimately lets them suffer the consequence and notice if you would that part of the consequence is God gives them to the fool what they wanted he says you'll be driven to other lands and there you'll worship and serve all kinds of other gods it's almost as if God says you really want idols Okay, I'll let you go to the land of idols for 70 years and you can worship all the idols you want. You know, the Bible says the backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. You know, sometimes one of the most difficult consequences of God's you know, discipline in our lives is the Lord says, is that really what you want? It's not what I want for you. That pursuit, that path that you know it's wrong, it's sinful, it's not what... I, but God says, if that's what you want, I'll let you have it to the full until you are so sick of it, it will cure you and bring you to a place of repentance. And so God let them go to Assyria, to Babylon, the land of idols. But look at this. This is God's love. He understood, verse 29, but from there, where? In the land where they're sick because they're full of idols. From there, repentance would come. You will seek the Lord your God and find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, where you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore 
to them. So again, talk about the again the mercy of God, the grace of God. You know, in the same chapter here, a few verses earlier, where God says He's a consuming fire and a jealous God. Now we read here of, of God's love and that He's a merciful God who will not forsake His people. And He says, when you're in that place, when you're experiencing the consequence of your bad decisions and your time of turning away from God, He says, but it's from that place. It's from that place. There will always be a window for you to turn back to me. He says, from there, from that place, when you're in your deepest distress, verse 30, when you are in distress, because all these things come upon you, he says there, if you turn to the Lord and you seek the Lord with all your heart and all your soul, he'll be found by you because he's a merciful God. And what a wonderful thing that God always, no matter how far we go and no matter how much we corrupt our ways, no matter how much we rebel against God, who's a consuming fire and what happens? Well, you touch fire, you get burned. And sometimes, you know, we, 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 we get burnt because we cause it for ourselves. We touch the stove. And God says, look, I don't want to see you get burned. But, if, but even that, even after you perhaps you know, burn up, burn out your whole life, if from that place, if that's what it takes to bring you to that place where you are in such distress, notice, not that you just call up, oh, I've tried everything else, I guess I'll try God now. That's not what it's talking about. He says, when you seek God with all your heart and all your soul, the idea is when you come to a place of distress where a person says, you know what, I am so desperate for God. And if God doesn't help me, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I am so desperate for God's help. And you say, God, if you don't get me out of this, if you don't change me, if you don't fix me, if you don't deliver me and bring me back into a right relationship with God says, when you do that, my mercy will rush to you so fast, I won't say, yeah, well, sorry, you're a burnout. That's what people will say. But God won't. God will say, I see the passion in your heart and God will come flooding and he says, I won't forsake you. I'll be merciful to you. What a wonderful thing, this glorious opportunity to be able to have access to repentance and that God welcomes it. The Bible says that he is ready to pardon. I love that statement. It doesn't say he's willing to pardon. It says he's ready, always ready. Tonight, he's always, always ready. Father, we thank you for you.